everyone. You're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegich. My guest today is Jeff Archibald, CEO and co-founder of Paperleaf, a specialized company based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, that builds websites, web apps, and mobile apps that are critical to their clients' growth. I was lucky enough to meet Jeff earlier this year when we were both at Owner Camp in Bend, Oregon. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll notice a trend in the lineup of guests we've had recently. <laughs> in addition to owning a company, Jeff is also interested in whiskey, coffee, sports ball, bicycling, fonts, all kinds of different things, and I'm really looking forward to talking about them all. Jeff, hello. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, likewise. It's good to, good to catch up with you again. Yeah, so you're in Edmonton in Canada, and that's much further north than we are in Minneapolis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I spent some time. I looked at the lines of latitude. I did the math. You're about 600 miles north of where we are. That's about a thousand kilometers for you because you're Canadian. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so we're used to snow here, but is it ever not snowing in Edmonton? Is it ever other than freezing cold? Uh, yeah, yeah, like. It's, uh, yesterday it was blazing hot. It was 30 degrees Celsius. Um, so whatever that is in Fahrenheit, um, let's go with a hundred 86 Fahrenheit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was yesterday, which is like really, really hot for us. So, you know, I slept in my basement. Um, but you because, know, because it was too hot and it was cool, cool in my basement. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's, you know, there's, uh, it's a winter city for sure. Like there's snow probably six months of the year. Um, but, you know, the benefits of being up north is uh, the other six months of the year, uh, especially in the summer, we have really, really long days. You know, we have sunlight in the summer until 10 p.m. Uh, mm. So for someone like myself who likes to be outside riding bikes and stuff like that, it's nice to be able to hop on your bike and go for a ride at, you know, 8.30 at night and still have light when you get back home. Yeah, that that really is nice. Yeah, we 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 ha we've had our like sunlight here ends at about eight forty five nine o'clock here, so it would be nice to have another hour. I wouldn't get any sleep if that was the case, though. Yeah, it's it can be a little tough, you know. You, you stay up a little bit later, but I'm not going to complain because you kind of got to maximize your uh, nice weather windows here because when it gets down to like February, when my neighbors pipes froze even though they're eight feet underground because it was so cold for so long <laughs> you know you kind of have to enjoy the summer weather as best you can but yeah you have to take advantage of it so my my daughter was was saying hey are we the only city that has skyways in their downtown and i'm like i don't know i uh, wait i don't know are there any skyways in edmonton is it like i think we call them pedways here yeah, so are those like like uh, basically um, like glass bridges that connect buildings over top of the roads? Is that what you yes. mean? Yes, I like doesn't isn't that what everybody understands a skyway to be? Says me from in Minneapolis <laughs> that only ever sees skyways. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It joins buildings downtown. Yeah, yeah, um, and they're <laughs> glass, and you can see where all the cars are. What did you call it? Pedway. Yeah, 
That's what all the signage oh, here says. It's a pedway. I, I presume a, a pedestrian walkway is the yeah. long form. But yeah, they uh, they connect like a lot of buildings downtown. They have them in the university here. You know, you can basically get a lot of places downtown or at the university without having to step foot outside in the dead of winter. Yeah, that's exactly what they're for here. Yeah. And in Minneapolis, we have a vendors and shops that show up like in the more in the oh, winter than in the summer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I really appreciate that. There's like this whole bunch of people that, that use the Skyway, especially around lunchtime. All the buildings empty and the Skyways get filled and they all go and get lunch. It's um, it's quite interesting. Yeah, actually. yeah. Not, not dissimilar here. No. So you're probably used to being um, in the cold. Is um, I want to go back to where life started for you. So your parents are both educators. Yep. Were you born and raised in Edmonton, or are you from another part of the country? Uh, born and raised more or less. Like there's a uh, a small town just outside of Edmonton. Well, it's not that small. There's like 90,000 people in it now. But uh, it's called Sure Park. So it's about 15-minute drive from Edmonton. So that's where I grew up. Uh, yeah, just in a house there with my parents. They were both teachers, so... That was kind of the the common thread throughout my my upbringing, I suppose. So they're teachers, so you decide to go into education as well, right? Yeah, totally, man. It was it was one of those things where it's like <laughs> I'm 17 years old. I need to make a life decision about what my career is going to be. I understand what a teacher is, therefore I will become a teacher. Um, you know, but then like about three years into that degree, I had sort of realized that I didn't really have any desire to be a teacher. Um, have a lot of respect for teachers, but it's not my, not my path. So I finished up my degree anyways, didn't just drop out, but finish it up. Cause I think there's, there's value in that, but ultimately I yeah, never, never really became a teacher. Just got the degree that said I was. And what was your major? Was it education or was there a, like a, a subject that you were interested yeah, in? Yeah. Good question. It was, uh, I was post, um, in post-secondary, I was a secondary educator. So over here, that means grades 7 through 12, so junior high, high school, or junior varsity, varsity, if you're in the States, I believe. And uh, my major was in English, which has come in huge handy uh, in the agency life. And minor was phys ed because, you know, jock, jock life and all that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so interested in the fact that most of the people I've talked to on the show and generally at, like even at owner, owner camp... It seems that people end up com- end up running companies that have some sort of liberal arts training, and usually it's English. So, like, how did that happen? I don't know. I was always like, I was always a good writer in school. That was clearly where my strengths were. Um, wasn't really much of a of a math guy, even though now I do a lot of math. Hopefully, I do it right. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Writing was always a thing. Um, ended up playing a lot of music and was uh, in playing and touring bands and doing some singer singer songwriter stuff. So different type, you know, more creative writing there. Um, but that ultimately, like when started the agency, I, I think writing probably is one of, if not the most critical skill that I have right now. You know, because it's uh, we use it for proposals, we use it for content marketing, and even just day to day communications with. Uh, clients or prospective clients. I can't stress enough how valuable that has been. Yeah, it really is a defining thread in the communication you have with clients, like someone who can write. You can absolutely see the difference between 
um, those communications and someone who maybe doesn't have that affinity, who maybe is a math person. It, yeah, yeah. I think it really does make a difference. Do you have a background at all in kind of the quote unquote liberal arts? Well, I grew up in South Africa and my major was physics and psychology. So oh, crazy. it was, it was through the um, department of science and we had this special thing where you could get a bachelor of science and do some, uh, coursework through the through the uh, liberal arts college i guess the equivalent of the liberal arts college right right so i was able to take psychology so i don't have any like formal training in english or in sociology but i do have psychology training that, so that would be so I think, beneficial i bet yeah it really does it really does help but now that my son is um doing his master's in psychology i realize how little i actually <laughs> <laughs> actually know so yeah um it's definitely got it's definitely useful. That's cool. You didn't start Paper Leaf directly from college, though. You you worked as an instructional design coordinator um, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. T- please tell me what that is. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I didn't really know what it was either, but ultimately it, it was for this little occupational health and safety training company here in Edmonton. So they, they published safety training materials, uh, some written materials, some... Uh, like in-person training materials, and then ultimately some online training materials. So when they were getting to the online training game, they needed an instructional design coordinator. And I applied for that because it was an introductory role and they wanted someone with an education background. Um, And so I was like, well, I have my ed degree and I need to get some sort of job. And uh, I never got into visual communications, which is the first thing I tried to get into at university. So this has a word design in it. So that's interesting to me. Anyways, long story short, I, I applied for that job and got into it. Uh, what that entailed mostly was, I guess what it sounds, the coordination of various contractors to deliver online training uh, courses. So let's say, you know, we would make like a transportation of dangerous goods online course I would work with a subject matter expert and a uh, content author and a developer and a graphic designer and just make sure that all those puzzle pieces came together to form that course. So for me, um, you know, I was always the kid in school drawing logos on my binder and Mm. always kind of had that traditional graphic design interest. Um, But that was my first experience in working with developers and a traditional graphic <laughs> designer who like I would go over to his office and he would show me all his old school graphic design stuff which is really cool uh, but that was my first experience in kind of working directly with graphic designers and developers and subject matter experts and uh, copywriters basically and kind of seeing how that those sort of skills would translate into an actual career and Um, so I did that for four, four and a half years, uh, quit and went to this, uh, private kind of design school here. And that's ultimately what was the launching point into kind of the digital slash graphic design work that we started doing. So you did a design job before doing a design degree. It was, it wasn't really a design job. Honestly, it was more of a coordination. It was more project man. Okay. Yeah. Is that kind of like project and like project management i guess yeah yeah i think that's like ultimately like the closest uh 
the closest comparison to it. So project management, I, you know, when I look at the project management processes we have in house now at Paperleaf, which I'm pretty proud of, I, I hesitate to call anything I did project management because I was like, <laughs> like 22 years old and just winging it. But um, yeah, that's more or less what it was. So you decide to start an agency. Like, what were you thinking? Oh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> and we, I, I don't know, it's probably the same thing as you, but like, partner and I decided to start. She had been uh, freelancing for a while and had a few clients and just doing it part-time. And uh, I decided to go back to school and said, you know what, let's just see if we could pick up a few more clients. You already have a small handful. And maybe we like, maybe I don't need to go get a job at another agency. Maybe we can just work out of the house and do it that way. Just like so green, you know, I had like no idea what anything cost or how to estimate things or, or do anything because like neither of us came from an agency background. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, even like pretty rudimentary stuff like uh, project check-ins and like writing statements of work and stuff like that, we're totally just winging it. Like I remember some of the first invoices I sent, I was hand making them in Illustrator, <laughs> exporting them to PDF. Oh, wow. <laughs> just like the world's most uh, inefficient shit ever. But it was pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, like just started because we were too dumb to realize what we were kind of getting into. Just so naive. Um, but ultimately, that, that naivety was a benefit because we just kind of plowed ahead. You know, sometimes I think like if I were to look at my age now, like I'm 37, if I were to look at starting an agency and dealing with the workload and lack of pay that I dealt with for the first, you know, three to five years, that that isn't a very enticing um, no. you know what I mean? What What year was it that you started Paperleaf? Uh, 2009. So we're just actually coming up on our 10th anniversary in August. Nice. Yeah. And why is it called Paperleaf? Oh, man, I wish I had some cool answer for you, but... Well, now's your opportunity to make one up. <laughs> so like, I'm going to give you a couple seconds to think about it. No. Go. Okay. Actually, the the real answer was, you know, we had like this giant list of names and mostly just words that I liked that were, you know, somewhat ownable um, and bartered back and forth with Andy, my partner. And and ultimately, we narrowed it down to Paperleaf. And the idea being because when we started, we were uh, more of a traditional graphic design firm, you know, doing stationery and and annual reports and stuff like that. Um, So paper was a clear nod to that. And then the whole idea with leaf is that, you know, every leaf is unique uh, in its veins and, and shape and all that kind of stuff. So we're like, oh, let's do that. That's, that'll be a, a nice little nod. Um, and now I'm just like, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great name. Thanks. I think it's a great name. And uh, we do have Paris Leaf coming up on the podcast at some point in the I future know. as well. Yeah. And that was so crazy to get the make sure i get the people and the names right when i was at bend with you yeah because that was Paris so Leaf is that was not about odd interesting you know well, interesting. Great, great minds think alike right i think that's I think true that's it. i think that's true so so you guys don't build yourselves as an as a digital marketing agency but you kind of talk about yourselves as a specialized company what what does that mean Good question. Like, I don't know what it's like for you and your market, but, um, you know, here in Edmonton, we have a lot of 
uh, city and regional and like Western Canadian clients. We don't delve a lot outside of that. You know, we have the odd one here or there in Eastern Canada or, you know, one or two in the States. But ultimately, a lot of our work comes regionally. And in our market, the large, large, large majority of people who do the work that we do build themselves as the one-stop shop, you know, the digital marketing agency that can do um, brand strategy and marketing campaigns and SEO and PPC and UX and UI and, you know, WordPress development and everything under the sun. Um, and so when we were looking at that, uh, we were realizing we kind of needed to niche down a little bit and narrow our focus. And luckily for us, the things we were really, really good at and the stuff that gets us out of bed in the morning is the stuff that uh, isn't really focused on here too much. So we love to uh, focus on UX, UI, and products. We want to build websites, web apps, and mobile apps. So that's what we're really good at doing. And here in the city, the majority of providers will say that they do that alongside uh, everything else under the sun. And I'm kind of of the belief that unless you're, you know, a giant agency like huge, it's really difficult to be great at all of those things. So we decided to not bill ourselves as that. We decided to focus on being a digital product company for people who need, you know, complex websites, web apps, and mobile apps, you know, not like your WordPress themes or Squarespace sites, you know, not that there's anything wrong with Mm -hmm. those, but just like the stuff that you don't really need to pay agency rates for. Um, Yeah, we decided to focus on that. And, And since we focus on that, it's been it's been really good because, as you guys probably well know, it helps kind of unify the team a little bit. Um, it different, differentiates us uh, from other agencies here. And, and it's a point I come back to continually if I'm ever in a, uh, like, the closing stages of a, of a project proposal or a pitch or something like that. If I can identify to the client that, you know, your problems aren't about pay-per-click marketing or, you know, lead generation or branding your problems are about, um, you know, business process or content management or something like that. If I can draw a clear line between what their problem is and uh, our specialization, then way more often than not, we'll close that deal. And I think that'd be harder if we were like, oh, no, we do everything just like everybody else. Yeah, I think I agree with you. So your sweet spot is very highly focused in your mind and selling the sweet spot makes a difference in the number and the quality of pitches that you do and that you kind of focus on, right? Yeah, focus on. But like for it's it's not dissimilar to you guys, right? Like, um, but correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you guys focus on Drupal, but um, that's kind of where your specialization partially is, right? Exactly. And so that's the niche that we are like focused on. Yeah. So so if you would need a complex Drupal site, you come to yeah. us. That's what that's what we feel like. We feel like that's the best kind of service we can provide. And if someone comes to us and asks for a WordPress site, whether it's complex or not, I mean, we if they're dead set on getting a WordPress site, then we can't help them. But if we have the opportunity to talk about what problem they have right. and whether Drupal might be the right enterprise solution for them, then that's a different discussion. I, I think you end up being more successful. And, and I love that you said that it kind of unifies the team around it as well. Yeah, I think it does. And like... One question that I, that kind of always bounces around in my brain, and I don't know if you have an answer for this or have thought about it at all, but is like, you know, we're, we're niching down a little bit, but 
how far should you go and, and when are you too focused? You know what I mean? Like, cause we're saying we're a digital product company and we build three things, websites, web apps, and mobile apps. But we could say we build these three things for nonprofits and post-secondary and, you know, I don't know, pick an industry. Um, but then you could also focus down more and be like, we are a WordPress shop who only builds nonprofit websites. And, and you know, at what point does do the benefits of, of uh, kind of niching down turn into a detriment because your pool is way too small? You know what I mean? Do you guys ever think about that? Yeah. I've actually talked to Jeff about that. Jeff Robbins, oh, yeah. not Jeff Ar- Archibald. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a handsome guy. Um, he is. He's great. He's just like you, Jeff. Yeah. He's awesome. <laughs> He he actually is. Uh, we actually talked about this a uh, couple months ago, I think. And I would say it's probably detrimental after the second level of niche. Right. So if like you've been very clear that you have these three things that you're building, right? Um, so web apps, websites, mobile apps, mm-hmm. right? No, what was yeah, it again? No, you got it. <laughs> web apps, mobile apps, websites, and websites. Yep. Yeah. And then if you say we also have expertise in higher education, I think at that point, you're probably done. Yeah. Like you don't want to say now only WordPress. Yeah, for sure. Right. Because that I think at that point, the pool is way too small. And we've thought about this as well. So um, I think the niche that we're in is Drupal. And if you come to us with a problem that is in an industry that we haven't worked in before, then we're probably going to do just fine. We'll likely rely on experts that we've worked with in the past to help us out with that subject matter expertise. Uh, But if you come to us in an industry that we've got experience in, like that's even better for you, um, whoever you are, a client, big university. In anything more detailed than that is just, I think, cutting it way too close in terms of a pool of potential market. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting too to, like, for me at least, to recognize the difference between um, our niche and what we're what we're communicating outwardly on our, you know, website and other marketing materials, versus you know our niche and our preferred customers as well. You know what I mean? Like we have, yeah, our, there's we have a subtlety ideal, there. Yeah, we have our ideal customer. But, um, and like a few, about three of them, but, you know, we don't, we aren't so focused and maybe we should be as to say, these are the people that we work with, or these are the like industries that we work with. And these are the three things that we build, you know, instead we just go, these are the three things that we build. You can glean from our case studies, you know, if you're generally a good fit organizationally with us. Um, and then we use those, uh, those customer profiles as part of our, um, project vetting process and project scoring process, you know, like how many boxes does this tick and should we, should we bid on it kind of thing? Pursue it. Yeah. 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 It's, um, and I guess the other approach is to say, Oh, I focus on higher ed and that's all I do or as a company. Right. And any higher ed we will have experience with, and it doesn't matter what your platform is. It could be Sitecore. It could be WordPress. It could be Drupal. It doesn't matter. We will make it happen. Yeah. And I, and I, I don't like, that's another way to slice the uh, approach and marketing and um, trying to do business development for your company. And that, that personally, that makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I totally hear you. Like, and I think honestly, 
a lot of us try to find the the perfect solution, right? Like we're reading these articles, we're working with, you know, business coaches, we're experimenting on our own business, but you know, what works for you in, in your, uh, your area and the kind of work you do and the kind of team you have, the messaging that works for you might not work for me, you know, in Canada. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I, yeah. I think you're right about that as well. Basically the, the, we're all the just messaging winging it, is you know? specific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, and we, and none of us should have imposter syndrome because we're all imposters, yeah, right? Exactly. Like I, this is a great learning from owner camp as well that I had is like, Oh, okay. We're all winging it. Thank you for, for bringing that up, Jeff. <laughs> It is, it is true though, right? Like, um, everybody obviously is competent and has their, has their skills and strengths, but in certain areas we're all, we always have that moment where we're just like, I've never done this before. I, I feel like this is the right path, but I don't really know. I think everybody has that regardless of what, if they're owning an agency or if they're, you know, like an accountant or anything in between. Very true. Very true. And if I think about your company, you're about 17 people. I counted on the website. Yeah. Um, and you're building stuff, and there's design, and there's code. Are you still involved in any of the like day-to-day? Well, maybe not day-to-day, but maybe the... Um, I would assume you're not involved in any of the day-to-day, but maybe you're involved in some of the creative direction or setting the tone for the IT, maybe the architecture. Like, what what does your role look like at Paperleaf right now? Good question. It's it's uh it's mostly useless, but uh, that's what I like to say here, anyways. <laughs> but no, the uh, <laughs> yeah, don't tell anybody. Um, no, most you know a lot of my role, I suppose, is focused on sales and marketing. I do most of that. Mm. I have uh. uh a business development coordinator here. She helps me with that a lot in terms of proposal writing, getting that stuff out. But, you know, from a high level, understanding how we're going to meet some requirements, uh, writing the, the odd proposal, creating the odd estimate, depending on if it's in my wheelhouse, you know, if it's, if it's too complex, then we'll do some estimation poker with the people who actually know what they're doing here. That kind of work, meeting prospective new clients, like all, all the stuff under the business development end. And then when it comes to the day-to-day operations most of that stuff is handled by the teams here and our operations and development directors my role is mostly i'll run part of the initial project kickoffs or workshop um part of that is you know i'm reasonably competent at it but also as a bit of a a bridge from dealing with me to now dealing with the project team you're going to be working with over the coming months uh, it's a it's a nice handoff sort of moment so a lot of my work is there to be honest a lot of my focus these days is continually trying to remove the hats that i'm wearing and i'm sure that's a, a common theme for everyone you've talked to but trying to make myself actually useless if i can do that instead of just feeling that way then i think uh the company will be running pretty well you know uh, i hear you that's <laughs> I think everything that you've described is basically the role that I have at 10.7 as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you were telling me that you made some changes recently to the staff at Paperleaf uh, before we got started here. You added a director of some sort. T- tell me about what's changed lately. Sure. We like, um, so we've grown quite a bit in the last few few months, uh, for us anyways, you know, when you're 17 if you were 12 to start, then that's quite a bit, but <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, definitely. But yeah, like, so we've grown a little bit. <clears throat> we had a role here that I was experimenting with called the team lead. So we have two project teams and we had a team lead 
uh, a designer and three or four developers on each of those project teams. And that team lead uh, role was kind of, it was a wishful thinking role that I sort of made up that was part project manager, part person and like personnel manager. And it ended up just being a not very realistic role. So Mm. um, what we did is uh, realize that project management in and of itself is a full-time job that so team leads became project managers. And then we installed our, for the first time here at the shop, uh, I guess that middle layer of management and that was an operations director and a development director. And then down the road, the next one will likely be a design director of some kind. I pseudo play that role now, but not really. And that was just about having, you know, me handing off some accountability to people who are uh, wanting to do it and able to do it better than I can. And having a little bit more reasonable job descriptions and workloads for everybody. So we put in Mm. those, uh, put in those positions, but I don't know, as you well know, there's some some math behind those things, right? Like if you're going to put in those director level positions, those come with a certain kind of salary and those come with uh, a certain lack of billable time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need to, like for us, we need to have a certain amount of developers and designers and billable staff to support those roles. So that kind of necessitated some of the growth that we found in the last uh, few months here. But, you know, ultimately it's, I think it's been great. I know for me, it's been great. There's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more oversight on projects and, you know, teams are delivering faster and they're more, they're more excited and more satisfied and clients are more happy. And, and for me, that means I'm not doing a half-assed job of managing operations off the side of my desk and I can focus on, you know, the higher picture stuff and also a little bit more on the biz dev and sales process. So, you know, those kind of changes have been really beneficial, but it, it's surprising. It, it took a, a long time for me to get there. Um, I don't know how about what you guys are like over there. We're um, we're still around the inflection point, or just after the inflection point. Um, right. That's before the growth that you've had in the last few months. Yeah. Um, and I was I was just remembering that um, something Jeff told me. Man, Jeff is coming up a lot in this in this podcast. Yeah, it's good for him. Um, <laughs> good for him. That's <laughs> Jeff Robbins. You can find him on yonder.io. There you go. Shout okay, out. there we go. Shout out. Um, so Jeff was saying that the inflection points of growth in a company loosely uh, follows the power of two. Okay. And, and so like going from one person to two people, like it feels like that's a big change. And I remember being one and, you know, hiring my first contractor and that being a big deal for me. Um, and then the next would be four. And yeah, there's definitely a dynamic that changes when there's not two people working on something in a team of four or five. It's, it's different. You need, you need check-ins and reporting and other kinds of things that maybe two people don't need. But then the other inflection point is eight. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Eight between eight and 10, depending on who you count. But to me, it was interesting that the next inflection point might be around 16 and that's kind of where you are. And at that point, the things I've read and, and the things I've talked to Jeff about, he's kind of like, that's when you start adding middle layer management because you're kind of getting to a point where all of these people can't really function with just one, um, you know, overseer, one leader. Like yeah. you, you have to split that up. So it's really interesting that that's kind of where you're at and that's what you're seeing as well. Yeah, it's just funny. You know, you, you move one one piece 
you know, or you pull one end of the string and then everything else moves. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's never just one change. Yeah. Like for us, if, if, you know, when I kind of understood that the team lead role here wasn't very feasible um, and we wanted to change that to project managers, then that meant that all, because the people, the production staff on that team reported to their team leads. So all of a sudden they had nobody to report to. Mm-hmm. So then I had to put in a development director, but she can't, or sorry, an operations director, because that was in my head the, the most critical piece. But like, you know, she can't have 13 or 12 people reporting to her. That's way too many. No. And mm-hmm. so then that meant I needed to add in a development director. And then I needed to figure out who was reporting to whom and all of this stuff. And so, and all that was from like, it created all of this change. And that, that also meant I had to hire now to backfill that PM role because I was I promoted a PM into the operations director role and then I needed to backfill development role because I promoted that guy into the development director role. And so there's like all this hiring and all this moving and all this changing of reporting which then necessitated all this changing in uh, procedure and process here and that all stemmed from one decision that team leads needed to become project managers you know what i mean it's how interesting yeah that it all evolved like that yeah, it's yeah. um exciting stuff yeah it was interesting too like that was um i, I want to give some props to jason clark from via studio he was at uh owner camp in bend with with you and i and i was kind of still kicking the can a little bit around when the timing was you know, for to get that operations rolling. And I was like, you know, I kind of need, I feel like I need one or two more billable staff before I'm really comfortable putting that role in. And he was just like, in my experience, that has been the, the best decision I made uh, for my mental health and by proxy, everyone else's stress and happiness levels. He's wow. like, I think you do that first, make that change and then find the billable staff. Don't, don't wait to make that change. And so took his advice and, and did that. And, and I think he was bang on. Well, shout out to Jason Clark, yeah. who you will also find will be on the podcast <laughs> in the next couple of weeks here. I'm feeling less, <laughs> less special. No, no, don't feel less special. You guys, all of the folk I met there were amazing. I'm sure you will agree with me. Oh, and it's just sure. like, I just want to keep having these conversations and share the kind of the experience with everyone no, if agreed. we can. Yeah, I'm just bugging you. That was a good group there. <laughs> It's a very good group. Okay, so I have a book in front of me. Um, I just so happened to like see it on the shelf right next to me. Mm-hmm. I pulled it off because I've been meaning to read it, and I haven't been able to get to it yet. And it um, it it segues really nicely into something I wanted to ask you about. So the book is called "It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work." Ah, uh, yes. It's it's by Jason Fried and David Hennemeyer Hansen from Basecamp Fame, mm-hmm. um, and. It, and you wrote, an, and, and so the book is about, you know, trying to run a calm company. Right. What does that even mean? Well, read the book because I need to read the book. But it, um, it segues from or into this article you wrote on Fast Company about the false hustle, mm-hmm. right? How keeping busy is just a way of not getting things done. Right. Um, and you've also written about humble bragging about, a 60-hour work week is actually symptomatic of larger problems that you might have as a company. And I've talked to Lynn Winter um, in a previous episode about burnout, um, and it just seems to come up more and more. Like, we are trying to be 
um, cognizant of what we're doing, of what our employees are doing, so that we're not detrimental to our own mental health and so that we're happy in the work we do, yep. so that we have careful focus in work and life and, and home. Um, and so the question is, what motivated you to write those two articles, uh, the false hustle one and the one about the 60-hour work week? The 60-hour work week one was just kind of a, it was a bit of a direct response to, I don't know, what I was exposed to and I'm, what I'm sure virtually every listener and yourself has been exposed to as well through social media. And it just is that, that humble bragging, right? Like, oh man, crazy week, like finally, finally shutting the laptop down. It's, it's 10 p.m. on Friday. And uh, it's indirectly talking about how, you know, important we are. And I'm totally guilty of this in the past as well, how important we are and how busy we are and how successful we are. But in reality, like, that's not sustainable. You know, it's, um, it's symptomatic of not having uh, enough process in place or not having enough uh, revenue coming in or, you know, just symptomatic of a, of a host of potential flaws with the business model. Um, so instead of bragging about it, like, it'd be great if we were bragging about, like, how everybody at our shop worked a 25-hour work week and it was super stoked and... And we're hitting 30% yeah. profit margins and everyone's getting paid properly. You know, like that, those are the things we should be bragging about. And I get, I get that at the start of, especially when you're starting a business, a startup or an agency or whatever, there is an inordinate amount of time that needs to be put in to kind of get to the point where you have enough clients and, and, you know, you can support bringing on somebody to help ease that workload. I understand that. But if, if it's continually what we're touting as success, then I think we have it totally backwards. And the, uh, the false hustle article, um, that was more just like, a, I suppose, a moment in self-awareness for myself uh, where I, I'm, I'm a productive person. I can get a lot of stuff done very quickly, uh, but I have a tendency to overvalue the volume of tasks I complete versus the importance of those tasks. So, you know, I could sit down and crank out 12 things in a day but did it actually move the needle anywhere? Like I was working really hard and I was being really busy, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the equivalent on some level of, uh, in that article, the analogy I drew to like Sammy Sosa sprinting from the, uh, dugout to the outfield, uh, in bit like in between innings, but then jogging after a fly ball, you know, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. And so like for, for me, I just wrote that, uh, more to remind myself that, you know, I need to make sure to understand what I really need to be working on, what's truly important, and apply tools like the Eisenhower Matrix to understand what needs to be done now versus what can be delegated and, and plan my week out a little bit better or else you can get to the end of the week and think that you moved the needle because you did a lot of stuff, but it doesn't actually mean you have moved the needle. How do you keep yourself on track for that? It, it sounds like a great idealistic way of living, and I would love to do it myself, but how do I... How do I actually do it? How do you do it? It's, it's relatively straightforward, to be honest. It, it's, a, I suppose, a series of, of processes. So we use OKRs here, so objectives and key results. So uh, I set one or two objectives for sales and marketing, which is primarily my focus here for uh, every quarter. And then I list out the key results. If you just, if uh, you're a listener and you're wondering what that means, just Google OKRs and you'll find a whole bunch of really interesting methods uh, and information about it. 
but I set out those key results and, and those are the things I really try to focus on. Those are, those are the things that are going to move the needle. Um, so I map those out. So if I have an objective to increase revenue for the next quarter, then some of my key results might be, um, you know, pitch three new projects every month. It might be uh, bid on one and a half million dollars of work. Uh, you know, just kind of key results like that. So that's kind of where I start. And then at the start of every week, I have a reminder in my calendar and about a 30-minute window to actually plan and block out my week. And it says right in there, like, review mm. your OKRs, figure out what you should be working on. And then I'll go through my calendar and I'll see what time I have available, you know, that hasn't been uh, booked for meetings or whatever else. And I'll block in time to focus on, you know, like this particular sales objective or this key result or, you know, this particular proposal that I knew was, I know is due by the end of the week. So for me, those, those OKRs ultimately are making sure I'm working on the really, really important stuff that'll move the needle. And then that weekly calendar reminder and the subsequent kind of blocking out of my time on a weekly basis is how I make sure that stuff actually gets done. So I need to use my calendar more for that kind of stuff is what yes, you're saying. I am perfect. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Works for me. Okay, seriously, seriously, but what do you do for fun? <laughs> what I do for fun, you know, to be honest, um, I, I feel like I'm not doing enough for fun these days, but uh, I, yeah, yeah, I know, poor me, hey, real first world problem over here, but yeah, uh, no, I, I ride, I mountain bike a lot, so, um, you know, might seem counterintuitive to the conversation that started this whole podcast about living up north in snowy Edmonton, but, you know, Edmonton has uh, one of the largest trail networks in any urban center. Uh, so I can go out my back door and hop on my mountain bike, and in five minutes I'm riding single track in the forest, and there's, you know, miles upon miles upon miles of single track. So I do a lot of that, which is really, really nice. Um, I have... Uh, Gus, he is my dog, and I end up taking him out to the off-leash park, park a lot. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll go rock climbing with, uh, with a buddy every, uh, every week or two times a week. So I do a lot of uh, active stuff like that. And then I do a lot of the, the things you would expect from your typical, like, black plastic glasses-wearing hipster agency owner guy, which is, like, <laughs> going to drink craft beer and uh, do things of that nature. Craft beer. Yeah. And whiskey without yeah, whiskey an E. Without an E, you know, that's uh, that's more of like a cold weather thing for me. I don't know. I, I, I don't think you drink much. Not a whole lot, no. I like gin, though. Yeah, it's so like gin Gin for me, you know, if you're making a cocktail or something, uh, th- those are always like nice, nice summer drinks. And then whiskey for me is, you know, if it's cold and snowy out and I want to stay inside, that's when, that's when a good whiskey comes about. And do you ride your bikes in the win- in the winter yeah, as well? Yeah, I don't. I don't ride to work. I'm not that hardcore um, in the winter, but I have a fat bike, so like one of those giant tired mountain bikes. So uh, I'll hop on that with Gus, my dog, and take him out to the uh, to the trail network that's by my house, and you know we'll do some loops. It'll wear him out, and it'll uh, you know get me some exercise over the over the, the yeah. winter break, but. Man, I don't know if you've ever been on one of those bikes, but it is, like, entirely different. It is so much more difficult than regular mountain biking. 
It is a very different experience. I've only gone on the bike once before, and uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time on it. What I can understand is why you need a fat tire bike in the summer. Because I've I've seen people riding them around in the summer, and I thought they were designed for the winter, and maybe I have it wrong, but, like, I can't understand that part. That's really how they blew up was for the winter, yeah. And then, like, people will use them for... um, you know, riding on sand and stuff like that, like with similar kind of consistency. Yeah. But yeah. Like, you know, to be totally honest, I haven't been out on my fat bike at all since the snow melted. So I just ride my regular bike around, but. So you have at least two bikes is what I'm hearing. Four. Yeah. Oh well, man. Know, the, the purpose design. Purpose <laughs> oh yeah. You need tools. one to go to the cruiser and you need one with this. And you need one to <laughs> yeah, you, <got> it. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's so awesome. Well, I, I've I've had a really good time talking to you. Um, I think this has been a great episode. Thank you for spending so much time with me today. It's been awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope, hope life stays well. And for you, too. Thanks, Jeff. All right, take care. Jeff Archibald is CEO and co-founder of Paperleaf, a specialized company based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, that builds websites, web apps, and mobile apps that are critical to their clients' growth. You can find them online at paper-leaf.com. And Jeff's personal site is jeffarchibald.ca. That's Jeff with a J. Jeff is also on Twitter at Jeff underscore Archibald. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.